You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. It's been a long time since we've had Andrew Burleson on, uh, but him and I chat regularly, and he's been pestering me with posts about scooters. He now lives in the great city of San Francisco, and scooters have become the menace on the street. And he, he trips over them all the time, and he hates them, and he just can't believe it. No, I'm just kidding. Andrew, <laughs> <laughs> welcome, man. Thanks, Chuck. It's great to be back. You have been in the middle of the scooter thing, and I, the opposite of what I've been saying, you've actually been saying, this is really exciting, and there's a lot, a lot here. Let me give you just my experience a little bit, and then I want you to, to react to that. We, of course, do not have... We do have scooters, but not the paid kind in my hometown. I had the whole Strong Towns team here a couple of weeks ago, and someone asked about taking an Uber, and I'm like, yeah, we don't have Uber. Uh, you got to have like a certain number of people to have Uber. We, we don't have Uber. So not only do we not have bike share, we don't have scooters. But I took a vacation last spring break with the family, and we were in San Diego. Walking along the beach in San Diego, there were just scooters everywhere and the, the dockless bikes. And I did the dockless bikes, and I thought that was fantastic. Um, that was my first time with the dockless, and I'm like, this is this is gen- like this is really good stuff. But I, sa- I got to say, I looked at the scooters and I thought that's for kids. That's not for me. That seemed kind of silly to me. <laughs> yep, uh-huh, definitely. And now they're everywhere, and it's in Minneapolis, St. Paul, both cities. They're having huge issues right now. Do we regulate these things? What do we do? They've got them in Duluth here. So, you know, even in my like Midwestern state, they're starting to become a big issue. You've been seeing them for quite a while in San Francisco. When did you first start seeing these and how are they being used out there? Okay. So first off, I'm in the middle of a, uh, a serious travesty here, which is that they actually, San Francisco banned them. And so they went away. So I was deep into the scooter revolution. And then now I'm on the outside again because San Francisco decided that they needed a cut of the scooter business before they would let it back on the street. So, so they're doing that. They're doing the heavy squeeze on them. That's what you're saying. They're doing the heavy squeeze. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I happen to know some interesting things about the scooter business and and why San Francisco wants a cut. And I'll, I'll tell you later, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that part. But so let me tell you how I got into it. So I had the same exact initial reaction to you. So one day, probably, I don't know, probably, probably about March, probably about that same time. I'm walking through Golden Gate Park, which is near my house, and this pack of like seven people goes by on these electrified scooters. And they're just, you know, whooping it up and having a good time. And they're all probably 22, like, I don't know, I mean, grownups, but barely. And I thought, well, that kind of looks like fun. I wonder where you get the scooters in the park. Golden Gate, by the way, is a very, very, very large park. So it's not when you say city park, it's not like, you know, your block that has nice buildings around it, whatever. This is like a nature preserve. It's like Central Park size park. So I'm like, oh yeah, they must be, you know, they have paddle boat rentals and now they have scooter rentals too, right? Of course they do. So that looks fun. We'll try that someday. And then the next day I'm going to work and there's scooters everywhere. I mean, and it was just overnight. They're just everywhere, right? So they're two on the corner of my block and there's a bunch of people riding them up and down the hill and down the street and, and I bike to work. So 
at every block as I go, I'm always part of a wave, right? And so my wave will typically be 15 or 20 bikes that are kind of riding with me the whole way to work. And this morning, my wave is like, it's the still same, you know, 15-ish bikes and like four scooters or five scooters, just like instantly. So everyone starts talking about this, right? And I'm kind of like, oh, that, I mean, it kind of looks like fun, but I mean, it looks, I think of the Razor scooter as being a kid's thing. So I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't know. It's not for me. I mean, I bike, you know, I'm, I'm a grown up. I bicycle, right? So <laughs> which tell my parents that and they roll their eyes. Are your kids old enough for the razor? Cause my kids have outgrown theirs. That's the thing is like they had them when they were, you know, younger. Stella still uses them. She's 11, but Chloe doesn't. She'll bike. She won't use the scooter anymore. Well, my daughters are four and two. Yeah. So, so not quite yet. No, Zora has a little, she has a three wheel little toy scooter that she plays on our back porch. She'll play with it a little, but I mean, she can barely make it go. She just kind of like hops on and thinks it's fun and kind of just stands on it, honestly. And the patio has a slight slope. So if she angles it just right, she'll kind of roll a foot and then that scares her a little. So she'll kind of squeal with delight and jump off and be like, oh my gosh, what a thrill ride. So, <laughs> so that's where she's at. So scooters have been happening for a couple of weeks. We're all talking about them and I'm sitting at work one day. I'm a software engineer. So I work in a big engineering firm here. One day there's this guy who's a coworker who comes in to work and I notice he's got a bike helmet. And I said to him, so, Hey, did, did you start biking to work? And he says, no, this engineer, by the way, I love, I love this person. I'm going to throw him under the bus a little bit, so I'm not going to name him, but is the like most dry individual I I know and just just incredibly like you could ask him hey good morning uh how's your day oh well you know I won a small lottery how much well ten thousand dollars oh well wow man are you excited yeah I'm thrilled (laughs) you know like that's that's who this guy is right so I was like did you start riding a bike no oh well what's with the helmet well, my doctor told me not to walk so much. He lives, you know, probably a mile from the office and normally walks. Well, what, what do you, well, I've been doing the scooter. Oh, you've been doing scooter. Is it fun? And it, okay, this guy all of a sudden lights up. It is so much fun. I haven't had this much fun since I was a kid. It's the best thing. And I was at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm trying this today. So after work, I go walk outside and find a scooter and hop on and ride the scooter home. And it was great. It was so much fun. It was so easy. And it was just one of these like really surprising things of there was basically no learning curve. And, you know, when you're used to huffing and puffing up the hills in San Francisco, having a little push button thing that you stand on and just kind of whizzes up. Now, some of the hills it can't handle. Maybe if I was 10, it could handle me on the hill, but I'm not uh, that small. So (laughs) I can't, I can't get up every single hill, but most of them, it just cruises right up, you know? So I thought, wow, this is really fun. And so I started kind of using them as part of my, my toolkit. So let me just like side tangent here and say like why, why I think they're interesting and why they matter. And it's basically that, like the fun and the accessibility. I will fast forward to some month or two later, I was with my family down in San Jose and we were walking around and there's this really big kind of like plaza there that had a couple of these scooters. And I, my wife had never tried them and I told her she would probably like it. She hopped on one. This was kind of like the ideal environment for her because she's very skittish around like any, anything that's moving fast or, you know, like biking even makes her nervous. She, she can do it, but she doesn't really enjoy it. So this was the perfect setting. There's no cars around. There's nothing. It's like completely no danger. Right. So we, grab one of the scooters and 
hop around and she hops on and she couldn't turn very well at first, but she still managed to hop on and go and get the hang of it. And she's sitting there like just kind of squealing, happy, you know, loving this whole experience. This is so much fun, right? So that's kind of one of the the things that just really convinced me. This, the low learning curve really is real because if, if Pam can do it, uh, I think just about anybody can do it, given given how much she's afraid of anything that like moves fast. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so, uh, so she got on, and this is so fun. Okay. All right. So let's side tangent. So San Francisco is a certain kind of place. I'm going to say there is not a lot of the U.S. that works exactly like this neighborhood, but there's a lot of the U.S. that's kind of close, right? And that is to say, it's a city that uh, has hit the parking ceiling but is not really dense enough to have good transit. There are probably, I don't know, many thousands, maybe 100,000 people a day who use transit in San Francisco. So a lot of people would say, oh, that's ridiculous. There's a great transit system. And in a way there is, but the transit system does one thing. And this is true in basically every city. And, and I think this is what kind of, to me, is the definition of a city that has okay transit, which is it gets you to work if you work downtown. Houston has a transit system that meets that definition. It could get you to work if you work downtown. What happens is, so for example, there's a, a muni train that's near me. It goes very close to where my office is from reasonably close to where my house is. I could easily walk the walk on either end, but I could also walk the entire way to work. I'm a, like 2.2 miles from my office. Then I have walked to work. Uh, it takes about 45 minutes. So I usually don't do it because of the time. I would just rather be doing something else with my time. And also because my office is in kind of a bad neighborhood. And so the last third of the walk there and the first third of the walk home is through kind of a not great neighborhood where I don't feel super safe and would rather not spend a lot of time. But the train gets me very quickly from A to B. But there's a problem, which is that the train is packed in the way that the Japanese trains are packed. And the difference is we don't have polite gentlemen in suits with white gloves to squeeze you on. We have raging, angry commuters behind you to squeeze you onto the train. So when I have ridden the train, I have literally been squeezed in so tight that I am squished between other people like human padding and can't really move. And now I can get to work that way, but I don't enjoy it. Uh, and so I generally don't don't use it. And the people who do use it, typically it's because it's the best available option. You can drive to get downtown instead, but it's 15 bucks a day or more to park. Like that's the cheapest lot I've ever found is 15 bucks a day. And a lot of companies pay some percentage of that. They'll let you do this thing where you can make it a commuter benefit and use pre-tax money to buy your parking. So you can get basically the taxes discounted. So some people do that. But it's not a very good option for the vast majority of people. Even at San Francisco wages, that's very expensive, right? So people generally don't don't have the option to drive. You know, so so you have this transit system and it, and it gets you to work. But what happens is if you want to go anywhere else or you want to make stops along the way or there's any like flexibility in your travel plans, the transit system is not going to really help you. And there's big chunks of the city where the only option is the bus, which is just as crowded as the train, but even slower and stuck in the same traffic as everyone else. So it's not a good option. I said that I bike. And the reason I bike is because it's by far the fastest way to get around town. You hop on the bike, you deal with a little bit of traffic, but fortunately, San Francisco has good bike lanes on the busiest streets and generally a culture here that's pretty tolerant of biking. So it's actually a pretty nice place to bike. And that same trip that I can make in 45 minutes on foot, I can make in about 12 minutes on my bike. I have occasionally reasons to drive and sometimes I will suck it up and pay for parking 
or sometimes my wife will do me this huge favor of dropping me off and being my personal Uber, uh, which that's like that, that by the way is the winning ticket if you can get it. <laughs> right. That, right. That's special circumstances only. <laughs> so, you know, even when driving, I can't get there in 12 minutes. It's 25 or so 25, 30 minutes to drive. But on the bike, I just whiz through everything. Well, why? Well, because the bike lanes, you can fit so many bikes in the bike lane. I'm part of this wave of bikes, right? Every morning, well, all those bikes easily fit in the you know bike box at the front of the intersection. So you never wait multiple light cycles. Whereas in the car, there's several intersections where it's two, three, four light cycles to get through. And those are the choke points that just really, really slow down the trip. The rest of the trip's okay, you know? Uh, but on a bike, you're going the same speed as the cars can across town. And you never wait for more than one light. And that's that's the difference pretty much. So you can just fit so much more in the same space. But the challenges with biking is that it's physically hard. Um, I mean, not not crazy hard, but it requires... No, you're in San Francisco. I'll cut you some slack. We could use the motorized scooters here, but it's so darn flat. You know, it's like we have no elevation change across the entire city. It's just a big glacial outwash. San Francisco's got some topography you got to negotiate. Yeah. yeah. So I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's physically, it can be physically challenging. By the way, there's a ton of electric bikes. Like that's part of this whole story too, which is that those are catching on more and more because of the hills. It flattens out the city a little bit for you, which is nice. But, but anyway, it's physically hard. And I think also the posture, like sitting on the bike. Now you, people can get the cruiser bikes and those are a little more comfortable for most people. I think being a little bit more upright and you feel like you have better visibility because you're kind of up and your head's up. But I think still there's, there's a degree to which, and this is the issue that my wife has biking is that she doesn't feel like, well, if something hit me or if I lost my balance or whatever, like I'm going to fall and I'm going to like land on my shoulders and head. Like that's just going to happen because I'm not going to be able to get my feet out to catch myself if I fall. So there's the fear of traffic, which is a problem, period. There's, there's not, I mean, I, sometimes I'm scared of traffic on foot crossing the street. So there's not much we can kind of do about that. But you have the added fear of, but I could have a fall and the fall would be potentially a really bad thing, right? So, so that deters a lot of people. But the people who can kind of deal with it, basically all bike. Because everyone knows that is the fastest way to get around the city by far. Everything else is kind of like a cheat variation on that, right? So you have like the traditional scooters, your Vespas and stuff, you see a lot of those around. And those are popular because you can actually typically park them. You can find usually a gap between two cars and squeeze in the Vespa and nobody gets too mad. The motorcycles and stuff are also popular and they will squeeze between cars at traffic lights. So you'll have all the, you know, you have all the city traffic and then you get some a line of motorcycles and bikes and scooters and Vespas and everything that will sort of fit in the gaps between the cars all just sort of ignores the traffic and squeezes up to the top to wherever the, the next intersection is. So that's just sort of how the city works. Anything that's smaller than a car can, and can squeeze through the gaps can go basically 20 miles an hour sustained speed, which for this kind of city or this kind of environment is actually quite fast. Okay, so that's the situation. And when you add scooters to that mix, what happens is they're incredibly cheap, two, three bucks for a ride. And your feet are underneath you and you're standing upright and you're not having to push because the motor is doing all the pushing. And there's no learning curve because they're so easy to ride that even people who don't feel like they have good balance and don't like going fast and none of like don't feel safe on a bike can hop on and immediately feel safe and comfortable. And they're tiny, so you can squeeze them through the gaps. And they're even so tiny that you can basically go onto the sidewalk if you want. If you go onto the sidewalk as a cyclist in San Francisco, you'll get punched. 
no one will let you get away with that. But on, on these scooters, people seem to tolerate it as long as you don't use the motor, as long as you go, as long as you kind of just like walk the scooter or, or sort of do it at foot, foot pedal speed, they seem to tolerate it. And it's true because you're, because you're going a lot slower, you're more in control, you're taking up less space compared to a bicycle. The scooter is even better than the bike is basically the, the conclusion. It's so much more accessible and it's so, so, so cheap. What happened with this sort of scooter revolution is it became the better alternative to Uber. And that's what's what's fascinating, and that's why one of the first dockless bike companies that really started to be successful is one called Jump here in in the city, and they are electric bikes. I think it's here in D.C. And Uber bought them, and then Uber published this study recently where they said that after buying Jump, what they saw was that if you added Uber and Jump together, that they had a net increase in traffic, but that actually the bikes took a little bite out of Uber. So. Uber itself is recognizing that like people would rather, given a choice, they'd rather drive themselves, you know, which everyone kind of knows. But you, the reasons you don't are usually because either possibly you don't have the car, but more typically it's because there's some reason why you can't really park on the other end or where you, you need to do your trip in such a way that one of the legs isn't going to work with you driving. The scooters and the bikes, it's all, it's all kind of the same thing. They're basically saying you take any trip where you could walk, but it would be a long slog. And you turn it into really short, really fun, really cheap trip. And that's what bicycles have always done. But the scooters just do it better because it's motorized. It's effortless. It's just fun. That's why I think this is such a big deal is that it takes the, the sort of idea of like a lot of people have talked about the future being the driverless car. Well, Uber is going to be Uber is going to really change the world when it's so cheap. And when it gets to be driverless, it'll be two bucks to go all the way across town. I probably would have told you that two years ago that I thought that was probably eventually coming. But, you know, the limiter is that Ubers are still cars that still take up that much space and are still sitting in the same traffic as everyone else. And the dockless, the app-driven bikes and scooters and all these other things are Ubers that you can do a one-way Uber for a fraction of the price of an Uber and you're not stuck in traffic. And that's the, that's the magic. So, and it's also just really, really fascinating because it starts this crazy debate as you, you kicked off the controversy of, oh my gosh, here's this new thing trying to use the road and everything it's doing. And, and so it's been really fascinating to watch the reaction to these because we're really seeing the 1910s, 1920s when cars were introduced, we're seeing exactly the same discussion of, is this what the streets are for? And like, how are we going to let these, like these crazy companies have just inflicted this on all the rest of us. But, you know, we know how the story played out the last time around, which is cars won. And now everything in the city is adapted to fit the car. And I think it's just really intriguing to find out. I, I doubt that we will see that the cities are enthusiastic to switch from cars to scooters the way that they switched from, you know, walking to cars. I don't think that's going to happen. But I think that, this idea of, well, you know, maybe the streets can handle both and maybe the more people who use something smaller to get around, the better off the rest of us all are. I think that is a pretty easy pill to swallow. And just by having a bike lane, having a good bike lane, like a proper painted, you know, full size bike lane, you suddenly enable a huge percentage of people to get around quickly as if there was no traffic. And that just changes everything. I have some questions. So here in my hometown in Brainerd, where there's no traffic volume problem, right? I mean, we, a couple of times a day, we ram everybody into the same strode through the middle of town. And that is unbearable congestion if you ask people there, but you know, it has no congestion at all. So, you know, we don't have a volume problem, but in your neighborhood, 
there is a volume problem. Essentially, you're allocating a finite amount of space. And right now, we allocate most of that to automobiles. And and a lot of them are single occupancy or or even in the case of an Uber, maybe, you know, two people. How do you think the dynamics of sharing that space are changing? You know, is this a matter of like Uber and the auto companies in kind of a sinister way pushing back on this? Or is this some... Um, you know, some democratic uprising where people are saying, uh, you know, I'm, we, we're going to take over the streets and if we got to have our scooters or whatever, is everybody accepting the kind of hierarchy of the space today or is there tension? Because I, I sense in San Francisco when I've been there and I've not been to your neighborhood, but I've, I've sensed in other places when I've been there and, and you see this in New York and DC and some of the other larger cities too, there's a tension over who gets this space. What do the scooters have to do with that tension? Yeah, I think the scooters tip the balance a lot. So one thing is I would say, I mean, Uber has very clearly shown through their actions that they are not interested in fighting against this. They, they actually would rather. And I'll I'll tell you, like, as, as a side tangent, the scooters are tremendously profitable, whereas Uber is actually not profitable. The scooters, because of the cost structure, you eliminate the driver. That is the problem. The Ubers would make tons of money if they were driverless. They're not driverless. The driver is the one who actually makes all the earnings off of the service. And Uber, the business, loses money, and they're able to stay in business because Wall Street essentially believes that one day they're going to turn a huge profit and so they keep funding them even though they operate at a, somewhat of a loss. Uber makes lots of revenue, but they're not profitable, you know, whereas the scooter things are profitable. It's interesting to me. I think what happens is the scooters just open up. In San Francisco, you see this because San Francisco doesn't have as good a transit as New York. I think you would see a lot of the same stuff in New York. I don't spend much time in this in New York anymore. I used to be there all the time, but I'm not there very often anymore. I assume they're having the same kind of stuff happen, but I don't know if the dynamic plays out differently because they have a more established culture of driving is never, you know, something that everyone could do. In San Francisco, driving is something that everyone can do. You know, so we have a volume problem. We don't actually have a volume problem for cars in motion except in a few a few bottleneck intersections. We have a volume problem for cars that want to stop and let you out. <laughs> so it's just about parking. Uh, there's essentially every inch of San Francisco that's not a building is a parking space. But of course, that's not enough parking for all the people who would like to be able to park anywhere, everywhere, all the time. You just can't, practically speaking, drive places because you can't park there. And that means that, means that we don't have that volume problem, right? Like the lack of parking limits the volume to the level that most of the city, most of the time, you're not stuck in gridlock. But the tension is there. And I think what the scooters do is it gets a whole lot more people to care about getting rid of some of the space for cars to make it safer for everybody else. And that's already been something that I think just kind of a, the younger generation is less enamored with the car and and I think more cynical about that you can actually fix that. I think in the past there was a mindset, and this is still alive and well in lots of places around the country. I'm sure it sounds like it's alive and well in Brainerd, where the mindset is like, oh yeah, well, any problem we have where the car is not perfectly dropping you from your front door to the front door of wherever you want to go in total comfort with no congestion, everything else, any problem that falls short of that perfect ideal can be fixed with more engineering. One more overpass, one more flyover, one more parking deck, more concrete will fix this. And I think in San Francisco, it's just big enough and crowded enough and old enough that people are just pretty jaded that like, yeah, there's no more concrete. It's, it's not going to make anything any better. It'll change things, but it won't fix them. And, you know, the traffic jam will move two blocks down the street. 
right? Like that's not a fix, right? So I think people are pretty jaded about that. And I think therefore they're interested in other ways. But, you know, ironically, what the sort of the older generation clamors for is why don't we have a real subway system? Why don't we have a good comprehensive high speed train system all over the region and everything else? Well, the reason is it's really, really expensive to build it. And you don't have enough spare capital lying around to make it easy to do. And when it comes time to either like significantly raise our already obscene taxes or to cut something, you, you know, those battles, you know how those go. It's really hard to win those battles. You can get a little bit of progress. San Francisco's getting a, a new subway tunnel for a couple blocks of downtown to cross kind of the major cross axis of the central business district. So, you know, that happens. But, but in general, that's just a really hard fight. The scooter thing is a different way of solving that problem. I don't know how you would ever get this to happen. I think if you could pass a car-free day in San Francisco and get all the scooter company, I mean, they'd all be in on it because they've all got VC money and they'd love to flood the streets with, you know, 100,000 scooters. But if you could have a car-free day for a couple days in San Francisco and give everybody a nice bike or car or electric scooter or electric something, you know, I think that you would find that everyone could get around everywhere they wanted to go in a fraction of the time when all the cars are on the road because everyone would be safe. If you think about if there weren't any cars and it was just all bikes and scooters and mopeds and all things that were governored to, and I think like for people who have uh, mobility needs, small cars that are governed to be at some kind of speed limit also can be part of that mix and some delivery trucks and stuff too. Like I don't think there's any world where it would make sense to completely ban all four wheel vehicles. That's silly, but to really, really limit it to people who kind of either really need it and have some space and speed limitations on them, and then everyone else kind of get around on smaller vehicles, all of a sudden there would be no traffic in the whole city. And it would be just, you could easily zip from downtown out to the beach, which right now is like an hour long trip. You could probably do it in 20, 30 minutes uh, if you weren't stopping at every intersection, right? And if you didn't need to, because you could just roll through because there was no dangerous traffic. And I think people are kind of beginning to get that sense. And the younger generation is much more prone to bike. And so they already kind of understand that like, yeah, the only reason I even have to slow down is because I have to watch for cars so that I don't get flattened. The scooter thing just kind of takes the number of people who are already your bikers or your cyclists who, and their, their proclivities and their sort of opinion that they weigh in on that tension. And it just greatly expands that audience. So I think that's how it, that's how it kind of tips the scales is it helps a lot more people feel that they have a stake or a preference and that they can kind of get it. That like, yeah, if we used our street space differently, life would be better. So yeah, it definitely changes things. The big pushback right now in St. Paul and in Minneapolis where these were rolled out, they, they've got the licensing thing. And I, I want to talk about that next. But one of the pushbacks is that these things are creating a lot of clutter. I saw this a little bit on the beach in San Diego, although it really wasn't bad but there were places where there was, you'd have to walk around them sometimes because, you know, when people get done with them, they just set them there. And my understanding is like the company will come out overnight and kind of rearrange them and put them in different places. But, you know, they pretty much you use them and then you just leave it there when you're done. People were complaining about the clutter. Do you have a reaction to that? Yeah, my reaction is, are we talking about cars or scooters? Yeah. <laughs> Right. I mean, every single inch of San Francisco, the curb is either a driveway or a parked car at all times. 
And so that's been the joke here was when, when the kind of argument started and people had the same reaction. Oh, these things are just getting left on the sidewalk and they are. And I don't love that. And I think it's not ideal. I think it's the kind of thing that had the city not decided they wanted in on this action and banned it. I think probably that's the kind of thing where social norms form pretty quickly. And I'd even noticed that, that the first weekend they were literally everywhere and found them like in trees and, you know, on front porches and, you know, inside restaurants and just, I mean, it was crazy. Right. But by the end of the first month or two that they'd been on the street, it was starting to be okay. When you get off your scooter, you take it to like the corner of the intersection and you put it by the light pole and you like lean it up against the light pole or you put it like in the bike next to the bikes, wherever there's a bike rack or you put it, you know, and it was kind of already beginning to fix itself. And the reason it fixes itself is because some 17 year old kid who doesn't care rides the scooter into the comic book store and the comic book store yells at him and says, Hey jerk, get out of my store with that thing. Go put, put it down at the corner. And kid goes, Oh, Oh, okay. Sorry. And goes and puts it down at the corner. Right. And then no one yells at him. And the next time he, puts it down on the corner because he doesn't want to get yelled at and no one yells at him. So he's like, okay, all right, that's how this works. Right. Uh, and everyone just learns, you know, the novelty wears out and people are actually using them. And so they want them in places where they can find them. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. And that's, I had kind of that same reaction personally that I thought, you know, Oh, these are fascinating. I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty libertarian as it comes to letting other people, you know, do what they want with their lives. And so I wasn't too bothered by, this scooter clutter on the sidewalk. But I mean, I noticed it and there were some places I would go where I'd, oh, that's not a good place to park your scooter. I don't know who did that one. So I felt that a little bit too. But I mean, I'll tell you that like, I felt that way with a little bit of, hmm, boy, I, these scooters are neat, but I don't like that they're just everywhere. And then I rode one and I was like, yeah, I don't care. I want them everywhere. I, they, you can leave three of them on my front porch. That'd be very convenient. Thank you. <laughs> you know, like once I like realized how fun and useful they were, and started using them as part of my way of getting around town, then I didn't care anymore. But and I and I think that's why people there's an ocean of cars everywhere on every street in front of every house. There's two or three cars. Like you think about the joke of the family with three kids and how it's the used car lot in front of their house, right? You know, that's a standard American suburban joke that my family growing up, it was three of three kids. And, you know, we had our old crappy beater cars for teenagers. And yeah, my dad joked about it being the family used car lot. We're just used to it. It's not clutter, it's transportation. So I think that's just a cultural thing that over time we'll get used to seeing that kind of stuff and we'll figure out social norms around what's the right way to do it. In a place like San Francisco, if they would take one on-street parking space on every block and just convert it to be bikes and scooters and everything else, the whole point of them is you can fit so many in so such a small amount of space. You could pretty easily corral them all by just as, and that's what they kind of do with motorcycles. You know, with motorcycles, they generally have one or two motorcycle spots or, you know, one or two gaps that are a little too small for a car to usefully use. Those will get dubbed as motorcycle parking. And those are all over the city, right? And if you said motorcycles and scooters, I mean, that would work too. You know, it doesn't take that much to accommodate something so small. It's a cultural norms question and it'll just kind of, different things will emerge and, you know, 20, 30 years from now, it will obviously have always been this one way. We won't even worry about it. So I've seen Uber. I think they bought a bike share company. I haven't followed it that closely, but they bought a bike share company, I believe. I can't remember which one. Um, yeah, it's called Jump. Oh, okay, cool. And and Jump has scooters too, you said earlier. Well, I'm, I'm not actually sure if Jump has scooters. Like A bunch of the companies are doing both. I think Jump is just electric bikes, but I'm not sure about that. We've gone through this tension with cities and the taxi medallions. 
And essentially, are you going to allow Uber in or not? And, and there was a lot of tension around that because, you know, especially like in a place like New York, the medallions were worth a ton. The city got that revenue. And now all of a sudden with Uber, it's a, it's a different business model. Some of that was resolved with giving the city money. But some of it was also resolved with just kind of the democracy of the marketplace, in a sense, saying, no, damn it, we, we want this, right? How do you think this is going to go? And how do governments, you know, maybe in a very cynical way, I'll say this, you know, how do they get their cut so that this can be smoothed over with them? Well, what they've done in San Francisco for the bikes is already established, which is they have a cap on how many you can have. And I think it's unfortunate. There's no cap on how many cars you can have in the city. If we're going to cap the number of bikes, then I think we should cap the number of cars too. That would help everybody a lot more, I think. But it's hard to do because everybody's sort of already established their life around this, right? So when something is being newly introduced and people aren't totally oriented around it, it's much easier to say, whoa, Nelly, we're only going to allow 500 of those, which is, I think, the number of jump bikes in the city. And the Uber data basically showed, by the way, when they published their, you know, their results for the first six months or whatever of the year, it showed that all of their data indicates that there's nowhere near as many jump bikes as people would like, that they have people opening the app and searching for a bike and then giving up because they can't find one all day, every day, all over town. So, and that's because the city said, you know, 500, that's the limit. Well, that's fine. That limit establishes a boundary at which these things are novel. You see them around, but they're not used, they're not ubiquitous enough to be useful and practical. I think cities will do different things. I think some places will say, like, these are fine, we're just going to tolerate them. And in those places, they'll become more more popular. I think some places are going to do the whole taxi thing. I, I sent you an article before we started this, which is about, in New York, they're trying to do a lot of different things to try and actually charge for cars in the city. And they've tried to do congestion pricing coming into the city, and that has been shot down because too many people feel like it's not fair. You know, but London has done it. New York's not done it yet. So they're starting to add a special Uber tax that is like to try and cut down on the number of Ubers. And the the quote here, so this is Sam Schwartz, president of the traffic engineering firm and a member of New York Governor Cuomo's advisory panel. It says, app-based transportation will fill up every bit of space in the city. We have to be very careful because adding more vehicles will add congestion. Well, he's right if you are adding full-size vehicles. But I think if you could actually shift a bunch of people, it's about space, right? If you could say, well, what if we had app-based vehicles that took up one-eighth as much space as a car? If you had you know, a significant percentage of people shift to that, you would actually be creating space, right? Because you'd be replacing, you'd be replacing car trips with something smaller than a car trips. And that's 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 the key. So I think what will happen is it's gonna be fits and starts and lots of flailing. Hopefully these VC guys will continue to do what they're doing and just recklessly ignore all the all the red tape and give enough people the chance because this is an experiential thing right if you ask people do you want to have a million scooters in your town they're like what no what is what's a scooter right but if you just plop them down and say here ride this it's fun right and then you ask them it's a different answer and for a lot of people not for everybody but for a lot of people so i'm glad that this like sort of crazy experiment is going I mean, within some limits, they're, they're not hurting anybody. They're not, they're not doing anything crazy. You know what I mean? So as long as they can kind of keep it how it's been so far and try to aggressively push and try and get these things in, 
I think you're going to have lots of fits and starts and lots of different things. And you're going to have places like San Francisco where they do it like the taxi medallions and people argue and debate over the cap. And there's probably never as many as there ought to be. But over time, I think there will be more and more because I think the city is going to recognize, hey, well, the more people shift to smaller vehicles, the better the city functions. And then I think the ultimate reason I'm super optimistic about the scooter thing is because the economics work so well. So I'll tell you, I know from some people in the, the business who I asked, you know, some prying questions that the scooters, the average ride is, I think, $3, like two to two to $3 is like what they spend. And the scooters themselves cost about a thousand bucks for the, like the nice ones. And I think they can, they're getting them in bulk. So that that's if you, I looked up like the models that they uh, so that's if you, if I were to go order the exact same model for myself to own, it'd be like a thousand bucks. So when these guys buy 10,000 of them at a time, I'm sure they're getting a discount of some, I, I don't know how much, but I'm sure they're getting the, you know, the fleet pricing. So what I was told is that they pay for themselves in four to six weeks, even with a lot of scooters being stolen and, and, you know, destroyed and the city throwing them in the water and like, who knows what else happens to all these things. These things become cash flow positive in two months. Anytime you're talking about a business like that that makes that kind of money, they find a way. And the city can actually make money off this too. Like the point is there's enough cash to go around, so they're not going to have a problem of paying off the bureaucrats. I hate to be cynical, but really it's about do you have the cash to grease everybody's palms to make it happen? And I think the scooter business, just by the miracle of economics, is a good thing for people that also makes a bunch of money, which means they're going to be able to grease the palms and like make it go. I think that's going to be the way it goes. It's just like a lot of fighting and lobbying and arguing and blah, blah, blah. And in 20, 30 years, it'll all have sort of settled out to where there's a, a licensing fee that those companies pay to use the city streets that is an absurd amount of income for the city, but not enough to kill the business. And they're everywhere. As a result, what I hope we'll see is that whereas today having dedicated bike lanes, protected bike lanes that are safe is a rare thing. What I hope is that when you have this big business interest and lots more people able to use it, that you'll see that it becomes very common for there to be lanes converted to be safe, protected, you know, small personal vehicle lanes. And that that will really make it a lot easier to get around our cities and a lot easier to transition to the miss those, uh, those missing middle building types where parking is the reason they usually don't work. You know, you can't fit enough parking economically enough for the people to live just a little bit more densely. But if they all have one car per family instead of two cars per family, well, now it works. And that's where the old cities, the reason that they have that housing type is because it predates everyone having two, you know, one car per adult. It works because it was built, it, it's got the critical mass to sustain itself. But when you're starting to get there from scratch, you go from Brainerd and you try to fill in those housing types where you need less than one car per adult. Oof, that's tough. And it's not tough because it's like, oh, that's the evil city that's preventing it. It's tough because no one's going to really, it's going to be hard for anybody to to make it work life-wise. They're going to have a hard time living that way. So if you make it where it's easy for them to live that way, then all of a sudden you can have a lot more nice, affordable housing in your city and a lot more little small businesses and a lot more, just a lot more opportunity for everybody to use that scarce space more productively. So that that's where I think it's going and that's where I think it's exciting is it just it gets a whole lot more people some skin in the game to care about this and to have the debate and to be talking about it and you know hopefully to tune into Strong Towns and hear what Strong Towns has to say about it. That's Andrew Burleson. He is the chair of our board, longtime uh, friend and advisor to Strong Towns, been with us since the the very beginning. 
Thanks, Andrew, for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. And I'll get out to San Francisco soon and we'll scooter around a little bit. Yeah, well, hopefully after they unban them. <laughs> oh, no, we're going to go. We'll go renegade, man. We're going to. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to get arrested for using a scooter. That would be fun. That would be that would be uh, that would be a good story for the Strong Towns. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right. Take care. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thanks, man. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a start. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.